Welcome to Rock Crit, episode 25. I'm your host, Armin Sabajan. Thanks for tuning in. And just for kicks, I'm turning over this intro to my daughter, Arda. Take it away, Arda. How he climbs. It's not being a familiar name, but he's been involved with publications, musicians, and record labels that have changed your life. His CV is stacked and will make you wonder what on earth you've done with your life. In the 1960s, Howie booked concerts at his college where Talking the Doors of the Dead, Tim Buckley, The Who, Pink Floyd, Birds, and many more. In the late 1970s, Howie started one of the first punk radio shows on the KSAN in San Francisco and co-founded 415 Records, which was the subject in our, of our last episode, how he has written for or and been involved in Crowd Addy Cream, New York rocker, like some published for fanzine called New Wave. He has good plans with Richard Mouncer, Stanley Perman, Lester Beggs, and others. After 415 Records, how he was. As general manager at Sire Records and president of Reprise. These days, Howie was the Howie writes the political blog down with tyranny and is an adjunct music professor at McGill University in Montreal. The original idea was to chat with Howie for a few minutes about his music writing and tack that on to our last episode with Bill up on 415 Records, but Howie's story was just too good and deserved an episode of its own. We think it's one of our best. Please enjoy this chat with the provocative and very funny Howie and on Rock Red. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'd mentioned, uh, I interviewed Bill about the 415 Records book, and I thought it would just be cool to talk to you for a few minutes about your experience writing for fanzines, publishing a fanzine, and just kind of rock critic talk. I thought I'd start by asking you a bit about your friend Sandy Perlman, who died in 2016. You guys went to Stony Brook University together, and when he died, you tweeted that he pretty much invented you. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was uh, uh, when I was a freshman at Stony Brook, Sandy uh, was the, um, uh, the actually. Uh, it was called the chairman of the polity. But what that meant, he was, he was the president of the student body. So he was supposed to have graduated the year before, but he was elected student body president. So he decided to stay around another year, which he did. So my freshman year, his senior plus year. So we go to the like a freshman orientation. So this is before uh, the school's in session. It was a freshman orientation a few days. And I had never seen anybody, any guy with long hair before in any kind of position of authority, uh, like long hair people. This was in 1965. were kind of like uh, outcasts in a way. And here's the guy who's the, the president of the student body and he's got long hair and, you know, look kind of weird in some ways. So my friends who I was I was with were basically saying, hey, that guy uh, probably can get us marijuana. Uh, <laughs> So they were encouraging me to go up to him and talk to him uh, in order to get marijuana. Now, as it turned out, Sandy had never smoked, but I did go up to him and introduce myself. And he he said that um, his government, I don't remember the exact numbers, but just um, so I'll make this part up. But there were four 
right wingers on the government and four left wingers on the government. And whoever was going to be elected freshman class president uh, would have the balance. And he just assumed that I, since I was talking to him, he assumed I was the left winger. I didn't really have a clear understanding uh, totally of what that meant in, in student politics. I didn't know what that was, but I had been working for uh, a guy named Bill Ryan, who was a congressman from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And Bill was the first member of Congress to come out against the, uh, the war in Vietnam. In Vietnam, and I, uh, you know, I was definitely behind that. So if that's what defined left winger, I was all there. In any case, I did. I eventually ran and won. And Sandy really taught me a lot about um, politics and about music. Um, and because I was not a music fan at the time, I, I uh, music to me at that time was just noisy when I was trying to do my work. So I, I had two sisters, and they were into it. Uh, I didn't really like or respect them. Uh, and they were listening to these 45s of, of current music. And I just, I, it was just a bother to me. And I remember I used to um, sort of toss them off the balcony when they were, when it, they were particularly loud and annoying. I was older <laughs> than that. Yeah. So, so when I talked about Sandy having invented me, I was really talking about him introducing me to, uh, to rock music that was not something that my sisters played and not something that was on the radio. I mean, my sisters were playing pop music and, uh, and that was obviously was what was on the radio. And Sandy was introducing me to completely different kind of music. And we, and, and as it turned out, he didn't have any marijuana. Um, the odd thing and the kind of funny thing is I was once in, 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 I was trying to find it. I could, it was very, very, very expensive back in those days, like an ounce cost a fortune. And uh, I couldn't afford it. And some friends and I went into New York and we met someone who was selling pounds of it for really inexpensive. And what would happen is you could divide it up. Everybody would get, you know, their chunk for a very, very low price, like really low. And that eventually led to me becoming the, uh, the biggest um, uh, drug, drug dealer on Eastern, in Eastern Long Island. But that, was, that came much later. But when I did score some marijuana, I was just with a friend from school and we were walking in Manhattan and all of a sudden there's Sandy's little sunbeam. I mean, you know, New York is a very big place <laughs> and we had just scored and there he comes, you know, with his little, his little tiny sunbeam in Hong Kong and <clears throat> we jumped in and I, I lit up my first joint in his car, which he wasn't happy about, but you know. <laughs> So I, I don't know if that answers your questions about Sandy or you want me to go on. I could talk no, about I, Sandy for hours. Do you ever wonder what your life would have turned out like if you hadn't met him, the trajectory would have taken? No, that's not, I don't think that way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and the other thing about Sandy is, is he was, he became a really great rock writer. I mean, you know, I don't know if, if this is completely true or, or not, but he was the first person that applied the term heavy metal to music so he kind of invented it he yeah, uh that yeah that's part of his uh his reputation but uh, and it might be true I, I just don't know so sandy and and richard Meltzer, who was one of his uh, colleagues at, at stony brook they were peers and i met richard through sandy and they were writing for a new rock magazine called crawdaddy Mm -hmm. And when they would go into the city to, you know, deal with uh, 
Paul Williams, who was the publisher, I would often go. And eventually I became the head of sales for Crawdaddy magazine. Uh, you know, I was, I was a full-time student, but I was doing that as well. Sandy said there's this, Sandy introduced me to a lot of things like uh, Andy Warhol films, for example. We, we discovered this band together called the Fugs, F-U-G-S. Yes. And they were playing uh, this little tiny theater called, uh, underground theater um, called, uh, oh God, I was going to just say the name and it just popped out of my head. Anyway, it was, they, they had a, like a residency there and we would go all the time uh, to the point where I, you know, I started getting to know these guys and they were kind of like the bridge between the beatnik music and the hippie music. So I can't really say Sandy uh, introduced me to them, but we, 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 we did it together. I mean, we, intro we introduced ourselves to this band, The Fugs. I wound up hiring them to come and play the freshman class dance. And that had a great impact on my life. But also when I eventually was arrested for um, burning my draft card, uh, I was thrown into a cell with The Fugs and others. But um, Allen Ginsberg was in that same cell as well. It was a really amazing situation that where they decided they were going to arrest the 10 leaders of the demonstration and all the other thousands of people would go home. As it turned out, the other thousands of people wanted to be arrested too. <laughs> but when the, uh, when they arrested um, the leaders, I attached myself to one of the leaders, a guy, um, oh damn, what was his name? He was like the baby doctor. He, was, he, he, he wrote books about how to raise babies. Huh. Very, very famous guy, well, you know, obviously long dead. Usually his name is on, right there, uh, but it's gone right now. I can't think of it. But in any case, um, he was very old at the time, and he was the last of the 10 people that the police had agreed they would arrest and everyone else would supposedly leave. And then they didn't want to let me under the barricade. And I said, well, I'm with him. And they said, well, we're only arresting 10 people. I said, yeah, but, but he could die and it would be your fault. And, and he started laughing, and uh, but the cop let me in. So I wound up in, in, in this jail cell with the leaders of the very, very first uh, draft card burning demonstration in, in, um, in about, you know, in, in regard to the war in Vietnam. That's wild. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what the thugs were like as people to deal with? I know, well, you spent time with them in jail. Yes, I spent a lot of time with them, not just in yeah. jail. I mean, uh, you know, I went to a lot of their shows, but we became friends. Uh, many, many, many years later, uh, we put out some of their records on reprise, you know, decades later. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, yeah, I, I, I got to know them and uh, they, were, they were a great bunch of guys. I mean, they were very, very serious about, uh, you know, things like that weren't necessarily discussed in 1965. And they were coming to be discussed. But things like, the, like ending the war in Vietnam was, was, a, was one. But generally what came to be the hippie ethos ethos they were um you know they like i said they were coming out of the the beatnik era and the hippie thing was just getting started and they were uh especially tuli kupferberg and uh, ed saunders they were kind of leaders in that uh, cultural movement what happened with me and them was i i had them play in a in, in a lounge and it wasn't i didn't realize you know, the rent lounge held like 200 people and there was no way that I imagined that there would be 500 people, <laughs> but there were. Right. <laughs> so it was way, way too overcrowded. It was like completely packed. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-Howie Klein was a guy who was the captain of the basketball team at the time. And he was the opposite of me. And 
he came over and just started screaming at me that their filthy music was, you know, polluting the air and his girlfriend couldn't get out of the place. She was being subjected to this horrible stuff and he blamed me. And I remember looking at um, his neck and his vein was throbbing in his neck and he was babbling and I wasn't really paying any attention to that. I was just looking at the vein and I thought, wow, if music can do this to some asshole like this guy, this is like something I have to think about more seriously. <laughs> so so it was, that was an important day for me. You got a kick out of provoking jocks. Yes. And I got even with him by, uh, I eventually became the chairman of the student activities board, which, which handled and allocated all student money. Oh, wait a second. No, that isn't what happened. Right. Uh, sorry. That came much later. And that's a whole other different story. But when I was the class, uh, the class president and there was a vote on some kind of, I don't know, moleskin, I still don't even know what that is, but it's something that jocks use. And I, I voted no, and it didn't pass. <laughs> and that was my revenge. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. You mentioned you did sales for Crawdaddy. Was that selling ads, Howie? Or no, 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 no. Literally taking the magazine and going downstairs on the Avenue of the Americas and selling it to people. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> selling the magazine to people. So you're just like hawking these things on the, exactly, on the street. Exactly, yes. That's what I was doing. What was that like? Like how, what was... That was completely fun. I, I love uh, talking with strangers. And, you know, I had something that was great to sell. So, yes. and, you know, it, it was just a pleasure. And I loved doing it. And, I, and obviously I went to stores also and sold them into, into stores. But uh, it was just something that I enjoyed very, very much. And did you ever write for Crawdaddy yourself? I don't remember. I, I may have, but I don't think I did. But I, I, I just can't remember. Sandy uh, and Meltzer did. Yes. And and I could imagine that I might have, but I can also imagine that I would have been very intimidated by them because they were both very, very, well, very, very intellectual about rock music. And I, and I wasn't. And they would write these, you know, I remember Sandy wrote this thing about the birds one time that yeah. I, I, I couldn't even understand. I, I didn't, <laughs> you know, and, and I could imagine that that could have intimidated me and made me not write for Crawdaddy. So I don't know. That was a fun piece. Actually, that, I think that's one of the only things of Sandy's I've read criticism-wise. It's good. Like it just, it's profound. Like it talks about the repetitive nature of the birds' music yeah. and how they made this repetition into like a virtue, like a form. It was, yeah, like that. That's, that that's, Sandy music. that's the way Sandy looked at music. It was amazing. And in yeah. fact, because of that piece and what I did get out of that piece, I wound up hiring the birds to come and play uh, at Stony Brook. When I, I, as I said, I became the chairman of the student activities board the next year. And the birds is one of the uh, one of the bands that I hired to play. Wow. Opening for the for the birds, I believe, was the Chambers Brothers. Okay. And the Chambers Brothers went on. I mean, I hired the Chambers Brothers. It wasn't like a package. And they came on and they played like just an absolute incredible set. And I kept telling them to keep playing, keep playing, because the birds weren't there. Huh. And as it turned out, they were all like tripping on acid, and their car blew up <laughs> on the Long Island Expressway. <laughs> So they, they did come, but they were very, very late. And, uh, but they did an amazing set, just incredible sets. <laughs> it sounds like these concerts were successful. You mentioned the Fugs one where you, you packed like 500 people into like this 200 person space. It sounds like there was interest on the campus. Yes, because everything was free. Like in other words, the students would pay $50 each as a student activities fee. Yeah. And then I would spend that money on entertaining them. 
uh, for several years. So we had uh, just about every band that was worthwhile in those days play. We did, unfortunately, I did, never got Dylan or the Stones or the Beatles. But other than that, I got everybody. Uh, you know, from bands on the West Coast like uh, the Aeroplane and the Dead and uh, Big Brother and the Mo- and Moby Grape and the Doors for four hundred dollars, but and everybody from England who is, um, you know, like uh, the Who and Pink Floyd. Now I knew Jimi Hendrix, and um, I I tried to get him to come and play, and he was leaving that day uh, actually to become Jimi Hendrix. He he was Jimmy James when I knew him. But he was leaving that day with the animals. And he said he, he promised me that when he came back to America, his very first gig would be uh, at my school. Mm-hmm. And his very first gig wasn't with the animals. His very first gig was with the Jimi, Jimi Hendrix experience, that trio. And they did play at Stony Brook for you know some tiny amount of money. And that, that was like a, a, an amazing exper- experience for me, too, uh, because Jimmy who I had known fairly well, not, I can't really say I knew him fairly well, but I knew I did, I knew him more than in passing. I mean, we had spent time together. Uh, he was not an easy person to get to know. And in the concert, he was kind of like very standoffish to everybody. He didn't speak with anybody. The rest of the band, the other two guys were talking with, with everyone backstage, but he wasn't. He just wanted to be alone, which I respected. But afterwards, he came over to my house. They all came over. We had a party at my house. I lived off campus. I had been thrown off the campus for um, being a bad influence on the other students, uh, meaning drugs. And and my parents had come out um, to see the concert, and they came to the party as well. And I went to bed, you know, around, I don't know, midnight or something like that. And about three in the morning, I woke up and decided I wanted to see if the house was still standing, because no, you know, everyone, everyone was like really high on every kind of drug imaginable. I just wanted to see what the damage was. So I look out the, my bedroom door and there at the end of the hallway is my mother and Jimi Hendrix passing a joint back and forth with each other. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, that's a, that's a moment I never would forget. Of course, later uh, years later, um, Jimi Hendrix and I uh, sort of the last time we saw each other, uh, and the last time we had any kind of, yeah, any kind of contact at all was in um, a city which at that time was unknown. Now it's, well, it's, now it's well known. But in those days, it was very unknown to Westerners called Esawira in Morocco. And he, he was staying there and it was, he was sort of on his way to the Isle of Wight. And, uh, and, and my girlfriend and I were staying there as well. And, uh, and we were also going to the Isle of Wight. So I, I got to, that was the, actually, I, that was the last time I saw him, but I didn't speak with him. I, we were just in the audience, like tripping our brains out in the rain. <laughs> From talking to Bill and, and reading his book, it sounds like in the 70s, Howie, you, you lost interest in rock and become commercial and lost a bit of like its countercultural kind of vitality. Exactly but, then, right. but then punk emerged in the mid 70s and that kind of rejuvenated your interest. Is that fair to say? Yes, you, you got it exactly right. Um, I, I, and I was at the time I drove in 1969, I drove uh, from London to India, Nepal and Sri Lanka, spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. So during that time, I had some of my old music with me, you know, the kind of hippie music that I liked on, on eight track tapes, I had an eight track player in my van, but the current music. I, I just saw it's like just corporate rock and, and I didn't feel people were making it for the right reason. I, I felt like people saw, wow, there's money to be made here. 
And that's why they were making the music and writing the songs that way. And I thought, wow, what a, what a phony baloney thing this is. So I did lose interest. And then one day I'm walking along on St. Mark's place and Danny Fields uh, and I saw each other and we, we knew each other briefly. Uh, when I hired the Doors to play, he was an A&R guy at Electra, and he came out to the concert at Stony Brook. And after the show, he 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 asked me if I wanted to uh, see, his, see his limo. <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> I'd never seen a limo, uh, you know, on TV, but not in real life. And he said, oh, just get in, uh, you know, <laughs> roll around. <laughs> but then he said he... Uh, I should come and visit him in, in his office at Electra Records if I wanted to, if I'm in New York. And sure. I, so the next time I was in New York, I went to his office. He brought me to this closet that was sort of in the middle of the floor. So instead of a closet against the wall, this was the closet in the middle of the floor. It was odd. I never forget that. And at the time, Electra was really the coolest label. And he said, oh, take whatever you want, but don't take more than two, two or three of any one title. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I was like a fanatic, a music collector fanatic and who had no money. So to, for to someone to say that to me, was that was like a life changing experience, too. And I thought, yes, that with that guy with the throbbing uh, vein in his neck and Danny, uh, who is, you know, a little bit older than me, but a contemporary, that made me want to be in the music business. Yeah. Those two those two experiences. So he, then I go to Europe. I'm away for, I don't know, six years or so. And I get back. Uh, and immediately run into Danny on St. Mark's Place. And he says, you've got to come see this new band that I'm managing. And I said, oh, Danny, I'm not really into, uh, into music anymore. I mean, I was into like, you know, Indian music, this, you know, and Pakistani music. That was, that was the kind of thing I was listening to, not, not rock. Mm-hmm. So he said, and he wouldn't stop telling me I had to come. So finally, I just said, okay, okay, I'll come, I'll come. So and it was at CBGB's, which I'd never heard of. And, uh, and the band was the Ramones, which no one had ever heard of. They didn't even have a record yet. So I went to see them. And, and, and it, it, ironically, it was also the night that Seymour Stein was seeing them, who eventually uh, signed them and also eventually became a friend and, and a colleague and, and my, my employer many years later. That's but, right. uh, you know, the, the Ramones got me interested in music again. It wasn't just the Ramones. That, that happened, by the way, on the one trip I took uh, from Europe to to New York. And the other artist that I saw was Patti Smith. Again, unknown, no record. And uh, Sandy brought me, Sandy was friends with her. And he brought me to see her in a basement of a church. Uh, And and that blew my mind as well. So it was both the Ramones and Patti at the same, at the same time. And I said, and Sandy wanted to produce her. And I was saying, you know, you're never going to get that on, on tape, it's going to be impossible. I mean, that, you know, the, that experience of seeing her is just not going to be captured. And I was wrong, it was captured. <laughs> and many years later, those two, although he didn't do it, those two songs that she recorded, were, which were kind of lost. Um, but as it turned out, Seymour had financed them. He never put them out, but he financed them and he had some kind of claim to ownership. And the first thing I did when he hired me at Sire was to release those two songs. I mean, and that was Piss Factory and, um, oh, I'm trying to remember what the B-side was. Oh, Hey Joe, Piss Factory and Hey Joe. Those are her first two recordings. Did this music sound similar to the hippie stuff that, that you really fell for in the 60s? Did it sound kind of like- Only in a way it sounded uh, similar. It, sound, it, it, this, it didn't sound similar, but it, it was 
in my mind, similar in as much as it was uh, pure and it wasn't motivated by anything but art. And it was, it was not about making money. And it was, you know, something from the heart of the artists. And that's what I, I loved about it. So to me, it sounded similar. But anyone who I ever told that to thought I was crazy. They, they yeah. didn't see the connection between the hippie music and then what was turning into punk music with Patty and the Ramones and uh, Richard Hell, some of the other, uh, Tom Verlaine and uh, television, some of the very early bands. To me, you know, in fact, I, I did a review one time. By that time, I was writing for lots of magazines and I did a review one time. I compared television to, to the Grateful Dead mm. and, and Tom Verlaine was so angry <laughs> and he, that he didn't, he, he refused to talk to me. He was, and he was furious and he made it very clear that he was furious. Richard Lloyd, who was the other guitar player in the band, said, you know, why don't we go outside? Because Tom was like ready to explode. And, <laughs> and, and, and Richard Lloyd and I became friends. We, we, you know, we went for a walk, for a long walk. And, and I, I really wound up really liking him a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I never, I, I never uh, talked with uh, Tom Verlaine again. He never spoke, he never spoke to me. <laughs> <laughs> was that the angriest anybody had ever been at something you'd written? Yes. Yeah. I've been reading some of your articles that I found online. They're fun, irreverent. Uh, were you trying to provoke a bit with your writing as well, Howie? Probably. I mean, I don't remember, but I mean, that's what I do now. So I must have been doing it then. You know, now I write about politics more than anything else. You know, and, and I'm, in fact, I'm kicked off uh, Twitter today. What'd you do? Well, uh, this completely insane state senator uh, in uh, Arizona called Wendy Rogers, who's a, who's a Trump fanatic and is generally considered one of the craziest people in politics in all of America. And she was censured, by the way, by the state legislature last week. So, I mean, she's talking about a really bad person, like really bad, and, and, a, and a Nazi and a racist. Hmm. And she, I'm trying to remember the venue that she did this in. Oh, right. I don't know if, if you follow this kind of stuff, but she was at a, uh, a kind of a neo-Nazi ra rally where she was a speaker and you might have heard about it because Marjorie Taylor Greene was in it and she got her in trouble and Paul Gosar, another congressman, they all sort of got in trouble for it. Does it ring a bell at all with you? Not, not that particular incident, no. But anyway, uh, Wendy Rogers got uh, censured by that and that, you know, she went crazy because it's a Republican legislature there. So it was the Republicans who did this to her. So she went nuts and she said something about, she used these exact words, publicly hang. And she was talking about Joe Biden and publicly hanging Joe Biden. Now, I'm not a Joe Biden fan. I don't even like him. I didn't vote for him. But um, I wrote a, I wrote something and I, I brought her up and I said that um, she should be, I said something about publicly hanging her. Like, in other words, just really quoting her exact words. You know, I don't know that I would ever have ever used publicly hanging, but I was using her words. Yeah. And, uh, and Twitter saw that and flipped out. And said, uh, or she, or she complained about it, and they flipped out. But for some reason, they flipped out. So they give you a a, a choice: you can admit your guilt, and you and you get a uh, you know like a twelve hour timeout, <laughs> or you could fight it in Twitter court, in which case you can't use Twitter for you know whatever, however long it takes. And what I've heard is it takes weeks or months. Yeah. So I just I admitted my guilt. I said yes, I'm horribly guilty. And I took down the tweet as they require. And um, so, so I'm in the middle of a 12 hour timeout from Twitter. So provoking Twitter. 
<laughs> you did a fanzine as well, Howie. It was called New Wave Fanzine. I don't know anything about it except I saw this cover and Lester Banks did a piece in it. Patty Smith wrote something on the filmmaker Robert Bresson. What was New Wave all about? Well, at the time we were uh, in San Francisco, we were looking for a way to start publicizing this whole um, new wave of music and there were, and, and culture. And there was there were no outlets, so uh, there were no local outlets. The local the local music outlets looked down at, at punk music in a, in a big way, although that ended. But part of what ended it was was you know there weren't very many issues of new new wave. There were just a few issues. And then another magazine uh, that I started came right on top of it. And I can't remember the name of that. But anyway, the, the idea was really to publicize the scene, the local scene and the national scene. You know, and I would write about any bands that were coming into town, like the Dam, for example, came into town. I wrote about them. And then, you know, people who I knew, like Patty and, and uh, Lester, I, you know, gave them the opportunity to write for it as well. What was Lester Banks like? I know you guys spent a day hanging out in, in San Francisco. <laughs> what was he like as a human? <laughs> he was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was, you know, he was a nice, friendly guy. He, he you know, may, possibly from reading his, uh, his writing, people might feel somewhat intimidated by him. But he, was, he wasn't that intimidating as a person. He was just, you know, a really friendly guy. And... I, I didn't know him sober. I only I don't drink at all. I've never had a beer in my life, uh, so I only knew him when he was drunk, uh, which you know that's how it goes. <laughs> but he seemed like a great guy. In some ways, he was. Um, I hate to even say this because it can't sound good, but he was kind of an imitator of Richard Meltzer's uh, in his writing style. Mm -hmm. But Richard was a very intimidating person. Not with me, but with strangers, he was very intimidating. And 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 Lester was nothing like that. He was just, you know, very accepting and friendly. And, you know, he was not, um, you know, he didn't challenge people the way the way the way Richard did. Do you, do you know Richard's music at all? I don't. I know his writing. And I mean, I'm sorry. He does have music, but I'm. I know, yeah, I, I know both actually. Yeah, no, I mean, I I'm, I'm a fan of both. He's got an edge to him for sure. But, yes. That, yeah, and Lester, Lester was trying to when he was first first starting, and no one knew who he was. He was writing fan letters to Richard, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and, and Richard wasn't happy because he felt that um, Lester was trying to steal his um, his style. I think he made it a bit more accessible. Richard, yeah, of course, Richard probably Richard didn't seem to think too much about readers and how they would receive it. He was just kind of writing the yep. only way he knew how to write. And, and, and just really for him, you know, like what I was saying about musicians who were pure, and mm -hmm. that's how Richard was as well, as a, yeah. as a writer. It's sometimes a little dense and difficult to understand. Yeah, I, I right over my head, the aesthetics of rock. I mean, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about, the aesthetics of rock. Yeah, fascinating book. Don't know what he's talking, you know, just this <laughs> mix of like grad school philosophy and rock references. I... I, I feel dumb as sticks reading that thing, but uh, well, after but college, here and I try. After college, Richard uh, went to Yale, and he, uh, although he was going for a PhD, he was also teaching uh, philosophy classes, mm -hmm. and 
uh, and it didn't last very long because he came he came in to teach one day dressed as, a, as an Indian, <laughs> an American Indian with, yeah. you know, uh, feathers in his hair and, you know, buckskin and stuff like that. I think that was like the final stroke for whoever was running that program <laughs> and they threw him out of it. Oh, goodness. You wrote for the New York Rocker as well. Do you remember what that was like, Howie? Yeah, you know, it was an opportunity again to push the San Francisco scene. Although I started there, I think, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't remember for sure. This is just an impression rather than facts. Mm -hmm. I think the reason I started there was because I was going to England a lot and, and they wanted um, the stuff I was getting in England for some reason that I'll never really understand. When I would go to England, I would like, just like get to know people in England who were sort of stars that, that who were unapproachable to Americans, but it was like no big deal. It was like totally like, you know, I'm trying to get into a club and Bob Geldof says, no, you got to do it this way. And we wind up like sneaking in through the back door together and became friends. You know, when I met the Clash, there was no particular reason why I would become friends with them. But for some reason, I became really close with uh, with two, with both Mick and um, uh, Joe. And, and to the point where when I was there, Joe got um, hepatitis and he was in the hospital and he wouldn't allow anybody else in except me. Wow. That's... Yeah. So, so the New York Rocker and the NME both were interested in me writing uh, uh, about some of my fun experiences, you know, with bands like Through Mick. No, not, it wasn't Through Mick. Through another guy. Who was it from? I, I, yeah, maybe it was Through Mick. Yes, it was. I met Billy Idol when he was in Generation X. And, you know, I did interviews and taped interviews with all these guys. And I don't know how I wound up at a recording studio with with Wire when they were recording The Fly, but somehow I did manage it. I don't know how. It just sort of just all ha it just happened. Uh, I wound up meeting George Michael. You know, this is this is one trip. This is trip many trips. And I met I met wound up meeting George Michael before Wham happened, and, and he was playing me some of his tapes, and I thought it was like amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to sign him. And then at that time, I had I had my record deal was was through CBS, which is now Sony. And the president said, no, he didn't he didn't want me to sign them. And, and he had veto power because they had the money. So I didn't sign them. And then he signed. them. So that really infuriated me. And yeah, so, I, <laughs> that's not cool at all. No, not cool. So, I mean, like like I was saying, like when I was in England, actually, what I remember what it was now. Mick was very good friends with Tony James. Tony James was the guitar player in uh, in Generation X. So they would hang out together. I was hanging out with Mick, with Mick for for a couple, a couple of weeks. I was I was in England, and uh, so I became friends with Tony. Then Tony introduced me to Billy Idol, who wasn't Billy Idol at the time. I mean, he was Billy Idol, but he, he was not a solo artist. He was just the lead singer in Generation X. And then later on, when 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 he became, you know, a solo guy. Uh, when he came to San Francisco, his record label didn't know what to do with him or how to handle him. And they were sort of frightened of him. And they called me and they said, would you babysit him for day, the day? <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> no problem. So I drove him around to, from radio station to radio station. And, you know, it, I, I don't know how it happened, but for some reason I wound up, you know, having like a friendly relationship with, with all of these guys. And, and that's why I assume, easily assume, the New York rocker was interested in me writing.
you seem to have a way with rock stars, like this rare ability to get them to be like human and to like you. What, what do you kind of attribute that to? I don't have any idea. <laughs> I, I never thought about it. I, I just, it just, it just was, it's not something I'm like conscious of. I mean, I could look back and say, well, that happened, but it's not like I ever thought to myself, I wonder why, uh, you know, why these folks like me. I, and I don't, I don't know. Cause not everybody likes me. I mean, some people hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I've only just met you, but you seem like a lovely guy. How we I am. So. I really am. But, um, you know, when, when someone uh, is like a uh, sort of a phony, I, 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 you know, I sort of like react to that also. To me, artists, musicians are very, very much like uh, politicians. And now, now my, that's my world is politician world, not, not um, artist world. And although I have, you know, many uh, politicians who I really like and I'm friends with, uh, others, um, you know, do not like me and I do not like them. And so it's, you know, it, 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 it's, you know, sometimes I feel bad about it, but, you know, with politics, it's, it's, it's different um, from, from music in, in other ways also, because they're voting all the time. And when they're voting wrong and doing the wrong thing, it's like in your face all the time. Yeah. So, and I write about it all the time and I, I don't hold back. Well, the stakes are high, right? I think so. Uh, I think they're very high. I mean, you know, I, I mean, when, do you know who Adam Schiff is? He's somewhat famous because he was, he he led the uh, impeachment of Trump, so he became very well known. But he happens to be my congressman, okay. and he was he was a state senator uh, before that. And I got to know him. And in those days, uh, there was there, there was no internet way of connect of, of connecting donors with um, with politicians. You had to get people to write a check. If you were going to help, uh, if you were going to help politicians raise money, you had to actually get them to write a check. And because I was the president of Reprise, I could go to my colleagues in the record business and get them to write checks to uh, to Adam Schiff when he was running for Congress the first time, which I did, and I helped him raise a lot of money, and we became, and we became close. And uh, but it's somewhere along the line I started realizing this guy's conservative. I mean, he's a Democrat, and I thought of Democrats as being liberal. But I started realizing he's a conservative. And when he got to Congress, uh, one of the first things he did was join the Blue Dogs, which is a, which is the most conservative wing of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And he voted for the war against Iraq. And at one and I just told him, like, you know, lose my phone number. Don't ever call me again. And I never spoke to him again. And instead, I started writing you know, really like very nasty stuff about him. And he is my congressman. Um, and it was hurtful to him because we had a personal relationship, but I guess I wanted to be hurtful to him. Mm -hmm. And then uh, years later, I, I got a, a really bad case of cancer and was in the hospital for a very long time. And he wrote a really you know beautiful personal letter to me. And, and when you're sort of dying and someone does that, and you know, we hadn't talked in years, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to like you know hold a grudge. So we became friends. He wound up saying, look, why don't you stop writing about me? And I'll leave, I'll leave the blue dogs. I'll, I'll, I'll quit. And I, and I've never told anybody this, by the way. And he said, okay. Uh, he said, he said he would do that. And I said, you know, that's your decision to make. It's not mine. Uh, do what you want to do. Uh, and then he wound up joining the new Dems, which are almost as bad as the blue dogs anyway. So he, let, he did leave the blue dogs. The new Dems aren't quite as bad, but now He's of all the blue dogs, he's the least 
offensive of them. He, he votes less uh, conservatively than any of the others do. So, so much and does things and says things so much so that a couple of months ago, I wrote him a note and I said, why don't you just get out of that fucking thing and just join the progressive caucus already? He didn't respond. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't I don't feel any animosity towards him at all. Yeah. I've taken um, up a lot of your time. I have one last question, if you have a sec. OK, sure. Wax Paper Magazine. So it's I saw your name attached to an article in Wax Paper Magazine. It's I saw the cover of it of of an issue and it looked amazing. Uh, Beefheart, Ramones and some comedian as well, too. I'm, I'm forgetting now, but it looked like a cool thing. But it's an industry magazine that you couldn't get in stores. But it was it was an in-house Warner Brothers magazine. Okay. So in other words, the publicity department of Warner Brothers put it out. And what they would do is they would get independent writers um, to write stories about their upcoming bands. So like, for just as an example, they had this young kid in Minneapolis. And I don't know if this is the one you read or not. And they asked me to write about him. He, he was recording. He didn't have a record out. And that person happened to be uh, Prince. Okay. So, yeah, so it was like you, like I said, they would send it out to people as well. Like, in other words, when the Prince album came out, they sent that with it when, when the first Prince album came out. Uh, and so that, so that's what Wax Paper was. So, the, and they, and I was friendly with some of the executives at Warner Brothers at the time, the publicity people, particularly Bob Merlis and Gene Scalati were both good friends of mine. And, and, I, and like I said, I was very poor at the time and uh, had no money at all. And like when I would come to LA for something, I would stay at, uh, at uh, Gene Scalati's house. So, you know, so you get to know people and you get to be friendly with them when that kind of stuff happens. And in fact, when Warner Brothers was thinking about signing Devo, uh, they, just like uh, with, I think it was A&M or whatever label it was that had Billy Idol, they also were a little bit frightened and didn't know what to expect. I had you know, been writing about Devo for years. They stayed in my office one time. They were my friends before they had an album out. So Warner Brothers asked me to come down. You know, they paid for everything, of course, my airfare, and which I couldn't afford. And uh, they put me in a hotel, which was amazing. I hadn't really stayed in very many hotels. And uh, so, so I, I, I wrote about uh, Devo and introduced them to the executives at Warner Brothers as well, who had signed them already. Was it common for major labels to have these like in-house magazines? Not that I know of. So this was this was pretty unique. Yeah, Warner Brothers was a, a fairly creative place. And the two guys I mentioned, uh, Gene Scalati and uh, Bob Merles, are very creative guys. And that is our show. I think you'll agree it was a doozy. Thank you so much to Howie for taking the time to chat. You can keep up with Howie at downwithtyranny.com, where he blogs. He's also active on Twitter. Thank you, listener, for taking the time to check us out and spend some time with us. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you'll check us out again. Feel free to keep in touch and get in touch. Our handle on Twitter is at RockRitPod, and you can DM us. And of course, we always appreciate reviews and ratings wherever you've downloaded this podcast. That's going to help us reach more impressionable ears. Hope you're having a lovely summer wherever you are at, and to catch you again in a few weeks. Cheers. (laughs) 